Well, I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 84. Psalm 84, we're going to read the entire psalm uh, this morning as our scripture reading. Beloved saints, we've come to meet with God and to hear Him speak to us, and indeed He does speak to us in His Word, so please give your attention to the reading of it. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of, the, of Baca, they make it a place of springs, the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That ends the reading of God's Word. Let us ask Him to be with us as we spend time in it uh, this morning. Most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. We are not naturally people of Your Word. It comes difficultly. And so we ask that You would be among us, that You would speak to our hearts, that You would illumine our minds, give Give us ears to hear your most holy truth, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, many of us are familiar with the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the, those blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And a few years back, we looked at these in Sunday school. Uh, they're called the Beatitudes. Beatitude just means blessing. They are the blessings. They're not commands that need to be f obeyed. They're, they aren't conditions upon which blessings are uh, offered. They aren't classifications of Christians, that there's some who are meek and some who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and, and there's some who uh, are poor in spirit. 
The Beatitudes are blessings possessed by all Christians. All who belong to Jesus. They are gifts of God to his children. However, they are gifts that are sometimes hard to recognize, to see, even when they're right in front of us. And so each of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are geared toward helping us see, not as the world sees, but as God sees. Where the world sees poverty, God sees heirs of the new creation. Where the world sees weakness, God sees power, the likes of which this world couldn't begin to imagine. Our greatest impediment to enjoying the blessings of God is often simply our ability to recognize them when we have them. Because if we only see as the world sees, we will be blind to what God is doing. If we look for God's provision only in, uh, in things in which he has no intention of providing, we're going to think we're impoverished, that we're without gifts. And so the Beatitudes are geared toward reorienting God's uh, children's eyes to what God is doing. And this is what Psalm 84 is all about. Uh, Long before the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Psalm 84 had three Beatitudes for us. Blessed are those who dwell in the house of the Lord, uh, in your house, ever singing your praise, verse 4. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion, verse 5. And blessed is the one who trusts in you, verse 12. And the goal here is the same as it is in the Sermon on the Mount. It is to help us learn to recognize God's blessings. And more than recognize them, to seek them and to rejoice in them. Uh, The reality is God blesses his children with all good things, but we often fail to recognize and appreciate those gifts. And so we're going to meditate on a few of those uh, this morning as we spend some time in this beautiful psalm, one that's probably familiar to many of you, at least portions of it. As we do, uh, what we want to do is uh, first look at the Beatitudes, the three Beatitudes, and we want to understand what they are so that uh, we can recognize them. And we actually want to be honest with how we struggle to recognize them. And then for each one, we want to see where they are experienced so that we might better appreciate them in our lives. So that's really our goal as we move forward uh, in Psalm 84 this morning. The first blessing is the blessing of uh, God's dwelling place. It's lovely. The psalmist says he longs, even faints, uh, to be in God's dwelling place. How often do we talk like that? I even faint to be there. Ultimately, God's dwelling place is heaven. I think we know that. But he has always manifested his presence in a special way uh, in, uh, in holy places on earth. 
And it was at those places where God met with his people in a special way. Uh, we always want to be careful to distinguish between the fact that God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, and also the fact that God meets with his people in unique ways at unique places and times. I uh, Think about the burning bush. Moses, remove your sandals. The ground on which you walk is holy ground because God was there in a unique way. And when the psalm was written, God uniquely manifested his presence, made it known in the temple. And the psalmist says he longs, he even faints to enter into that temple, to just be there. Because it's there that he tastes of heaven. And this is where the rub is. Uh, most of us, uh, if we can be blunt and honest, since it's just us here today, have very skewed ideas of heaven. And if our understanding of heaven is wrong, we will struggle to recognize it when we see it. When I ask most people what they look forward to most about heaven, the answer I usually get, of course, no one here, but you know, other places, is something earthly and very me-centered. I usually take some pleasure experienced in this life and sort of absolutizes it. And that could be uh, sports or other, something else physical and abilities and sort of, you know, a, a very high understanding of those abilities. For others, it's entertainment. I'm just going to go to like a concert for the rest of my life or something like that or for heaven. Or for some, it might be intellectual. I'm going to sit down with the great minds and we're just going to talk about big thoughts and ideas. But whatever that image is, more often than not, it's really just a better version of some pleasure in this world. And it usually focuses on the person talking. Now, that might sound like I'm being unfair. That's no fair, Pastor. You said, what are you most looking forward to? And now you're saying, it's all about you. Well, okay. But I'm sure you'd see the problem is if you asked a young man before his wedding, you know, what are you looking forward to most about your honeymoon? And he was like, playing video games or like finding a pickup game of basketball with the locals. You'd be like, you idiot. What you should be looking forward to most is being with your bride. The blessing of heaven is who's there. God. Look at verse 2. And the vision of what the psalmist longs to do in heaven. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He understands that the great joy of being in heaven is being with God. He is the reward of heaven. And so the psalmist can imagine nothing greater than singing for joy to the God who is the source of life. Nothing could be greater than to just be in his presence. And the psalmist looks at the temple and he, and he sees swallows and sparrows sneaking in and building their nests. And he thinks, 
they get it better than we do. They're content just to be near their creator. How many of us aren't as smart as swallows and sparrows? Now, I've said that the Beatitudes are blessings that we already have, not blessings we we need to obtain. Now, obviously, we aren't in heaven yet. So how do we experience God's presence? Where is the temple in our world? The Bible makes it clear that we enter into God's presence when we enter into worship. There's one day a week when we are invited to experience God's presence in a unique way. And it's here that we we taste. of heaven. And we sing for joy to the living God. But how often do we miss the beauty of it because we're looking for a heaven that's built around our earthly pleasures and our taste and really us? We love to quote the psalm. We know it well. We say, oh, I would, I'd rather be in heaven for a day. I would just long to be in God's presence. But if you truly longed for nothing more than to be in God's presence, what would be able to keep you from it? Think of all the reasons we allow ourselves to miss worship competing opportunities, poorly planned schedules, and needing to just, you know, sleep in on Sunday. Personal conflicts with people at church. I just don't know if I can face him or her today. The quality of the service, the singing, the preaching, the comfort of the chairs, the temperature of the room, They all come down to my wants not being met. I'm not denying that there are some legitimate reasons for not coming. If you are sick, out of love for others, please, some things aren't worth sharing. If you're injured or debilitated, we we understand. I'm just saying that if we really believed that God was going to be there, There wouldn't be much that could keep us from being there. And let's be honest, there are far too many things that keep us from coming. And it's not truly because something's lacking. After all, God's there. If you really believed God was there, going to be someplace, would, would you crawl through a swamp. What can keep you from being there? He says do we, that he is here when we worship. The reasons we don't come is because we don't appreciate the greatest blessing for what it is. If I can be blunt, we're not as smart as the swallows and the sparrows. 
The cure is not to add something that's missing, to find out what's missing and fix it. It's not to change it to be more in accord with your wants. It's to learn to appreciate being in God's presence. That's what Psalm 84 is trying to help us do. It's to learn to appreciate Him and what we already have in Him. The second blessing is God's strength, or or more accurately, having God as your strength. Notice it doesn't say, blessed is he who has the strength of the Lord. He says, blessed is he whose strength is the Lord. Again, Beatitudes are meant to help reorient our eyes to see blessing where it is, rather than where we expect it. What do we think strength looks like? We think it means always winning, never being in danger, never suffering. So when hardships come, we think it's proof that we are weak and unprotected and unsupported, that we need some strength that we don't already have. Otherwise, how would we be in this mess? But look how it is described in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now, the valley of, of Baca is, is not an actual place in Israel. This is like uh, the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's, it's describing a place in life, not a place in the land. Uh, the valley of Baca is, is the valley of, of weeping or the valley of tears, if we were to translate it. It's saying God's strength is experienced when you are in life's valleys and you're drowning in tears. It's experienced as God produces life-giving springs from those salty tears. It's as if he's turning those tears into waters of life. This is where God's power and strength are truly experienced, not by avoiding the great hardships, but by redeeming those hardships. That's the greater strength. His power is most truly demonstrated in his ability to bring beauty out of adversity. Listen to how Ephesians describes God's power. And what he says, he wants us to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. You see, God's power was not demonstrated in keeping Jesus from the grave. Jesus said, I could have called down thousands of angels. No, that wasn't how power was demonstrated. Power was demonstrated in bringing him through the grave into something far greater. And if we don't understand that, we will think that adversity is proof that God is not our strength, that we are defeated. We will think his strength is a blessing we clearly don't have. After all, if I had his strength, I would never be in this mess. 
We will feel conquered. We'll want to throw in the towel. We will look to ourselves to be our own strength, thinking that God has abandoned us. But if we believe that his strength is our strength, that he is our strength, and that he demonstrates his, demonstrates his strength by turning valleys of tears into pools of life, we will wait with eager expectation for what God is going to do. And we'll remember that his strength is inexhaustible. Look at verse 7. God's people go from strength to strength. From, from victory to victory. You know, it, it just would not have been as beautiful a psalm if he had said, God's our strength, but you win some and you lose some. He says, no, you go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. Because in God, you win them all because he conquers death. He dries tears and he brings life out of the valleys. If we look for his strength in the wrong place, we'll miss it altogether. But if we're in the middle of mourning and suffering and tears, we'll say, my God is so strong, he can redeem even this. This will eventually be a victory. I will go from strength to strength. The disciples had been looking for a demonstration of power that avoided the cross. But that power would have been nothing compared to what they actually witnessed on Sunday morning. God's strength is not something we need to obtain. If you have God, he is your strength. But you will experience his strength the most in the midst of hardships. It's there you will truly see his power in ways that you can't imagine. But his blessings aren't always where we think we'll see them. And so we struggle to recognize them. The third blessing uh, is seen in verses... Uh, third blessing seen in verses 8 through 12. And with this final blessing, it's as if the camera kind of pans back and gives us a, a bigger uh, image of, of his blessings, uh, the big picture. With the first two, we looked at very specific gifts, God's presence and his strength. With this last one, we see a much broader expression of God's provision in general. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. That's sort of all-encompassing, isn't it? He withholds no good things. That's another way of saying we have all good things. All good things belong to those who walk uprightly. And verse 10 explains what it means to walk uprightly. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, just like the valley of, of Baca is, is not a physical place, neither are the tents of wickedness. It's not saying, be careful what neighborhood you move into. Rather, the tents of wickedness are contrasted with God's courts, which were described in verses 1 through 3. If God's courts are where he is, and where he is your chief desire, and singing his praises is your greatest delight, the tents of wickedness are where you are your chief desire, and your earthly pleasures are your greatest delights. 
I could paraphrase it this way. A day of serving God is better than a thousand of serving yourself. A day of serving God is better than a thousand of serving yourself. If your idea of being blessed is being served by others, then you will be blind to God's blessings. And you will think that he is withholding good things from you. But if your joy is losing yourself in God and his ways, then you will begin to see and recognize more gifts than you could ever imagine. It's not that God will begin to bless you. (laughs) Rather, you'll start to see these blessings that have been around you from the beginning. You remember that episode, uh, I forget, was it, I think it was Elisha, not Elijah. They're, they're surrounded by the armies. And the servant is scared. And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. He opens his eyes and he sees a whole myriad of, of angels around him. The angels didn't show up. He just finally perceived what was there already. The more in tune we become with how God blesses us, the more we identify they they aren't starting. I've just been missing them. These blessings are not things we earn or obtain on our own. They belong to those who trust in Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 root uh, the experience of all these blessings in what he calls the shield, uh, whom he then calls God's anointed or Messiah in Hebrew. These, uh, the, the shield and the anointed were common titles for the kings of Israel who sat on David's throne. And the idea was that God would bless his people through his anointed servant. The king was the instrument through which God would bring redemption from the Valley of Tears. The king was the one who would bring the people to dwell safely in God's land. But then in verse 12, he says, Blessed is everyone who trusts in you. Because the king is just a visible reminder of, of God's strength and provision. More than that, a day would come when when God himself would take on flesh and blood and he would be their king in order to conquer death and guarantee a future in the heavenly courts for all eternity. And so Jesus, a descendant of David, came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he paid the price we owed for our sins. He allowed death to consume him. And he was buried in the grave. He did not believe that strength would mean he would not die. He knew that strength meant death would not be the end. It would not have the final word. Strength meant making something beautiful out of something ugly. And so he gave up all good things in order that he might give them to us. And that means 
all of these blessings have been bought and paid for. They have been won and accomplished by Jesus. You don't need to earn them. Psalm 84 is not saying, if you would just learn to value the right things, if you would, if you would just stop serving yourself, God will bless you. That's works righteousness. The Bible knows nothing of that. Rather, what it is saying is, in Jesus Christ, you already have been blessed with every good thing. You just might struggle to recognize them. Learn to love what God loves and you'll see blessings all around you. You will learn that one one day of singing God's praises is better than a thousand of singing your own. One day of serving in God's presence is better than a thousand of being served. Blessed are those who are able to recognize blessings when they come. That's the greatest struggle for Christians in this life. Learning to not see as the world sees, but as God sees. And to help us with that, Jesus has given us the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine are are, are pictures of wrath. Uh, Pictures of death. Jesus' body and blood given in death on the cross. It's a cup of wrath. It's a a cup of death. And yet, what does 1 Corinthians call it? A cup of blessing. (laughs) How can a a cup of wrath be a cup of blessing? It's only possible when you see with the eyes of faith, when you see as God sees... Through death and the grave, Jesus purchased blessing and salvation for his people. He turned the valley of weeping into springs of living water. He he took defeat and turned it into victory. The cup of wrath becomes a cup of blessing. And so the Lord's Supper helps us to see not, uh, not as the world sees. It helps us to see blessings where, where the world would miss them, where others would not see them. And of course, the Lord's Supper is a unique blessing that we have when we gather for worship and enter into God's presence and sing in his courts with joy to the living God. So the Lord's Supper teaches us to confess that a day in his courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. So I'd like to ask the elders uh, to come forward that we might receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. And please pray with me. Father, you know us. You know how we struggle to see with the eyes of faith. We look for blessings in the things you never promised. And we're blind to the rich gifts that you give us every day. 
forgive us our folly and help us to see your blessings. And more than just seeing, help us to delight in them. May we delight in coming into your presence. May we see your strength and hardship. And may we truly believe that you withhold no good thing from your children. That we are blessed when we put our trust in you. All things, all these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.